morning, everyone. And it's uh, well worth turning back to the first of the readings uh, that Sue read for us, 1 Samuel chapter 2, as we continue our journey through this letter, as Josh said. And also inside uh, the handout, there is a, an outline of where we're heading as we look at these first 10 verses of uh, 1 Samuel 2. Let me repeat the words that we have just declared together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. Uh, This creedal line we've just shared together is, uh, in our world, a hopeful declaration uh, in a world that is short of hope, hope that lasts anyway. Uh, This creedal line, I think, is somewhat of a joyful protest in a world like ours. A world where cynical self-belief rules the day. Here is belief in God, not in ourselves. I believe in God Almighty. And so let me ask you as we open 1 Samuel 2 together, do you believe in God? It seems a a silly question to ask at at church on a, a Sunday morning as we gather here. But let me ask it another way. If you didn't believe in God, uh, would your worldview change very much? Would the way you approach life, would your plans and priorities and and passions be be particularly different uh, if you didn't believe in God? 1 Samuel 2 uh, says that belief in God means that life in this world and the way we see life in this world changes entirely, uh, not just partially, but entirely. And in these first 10 verses of uh, chapter 2, we have Hannah's prayer recorded for us, and that will help us see just how much life changes and our worldview changes when we put our faith in God and not in ourselves. Uh, As Josh said in his introduction uh, to uh, what we're looking at together today, it is at, at its simplest just a response to the miraculous gift that God has given uh, this woman Hannah, the miraculous birth of her son Samuel. But again, as we're going to see all the way through this book, her prayer uh, blows out into something far bigger than just uh, a domestic uh, response. Uh, Her prayer uh, zooms out in scope with implications reaching well to the very ends of the earth. Essentially, and you'll see this on the outline, what her prayer is going to reveal is this. Belief in God changes how we see things now and how they will be in the future. Now, they're the two things that changes in terms of our perspective, and here's what it also does. That new perspective on the present and on the future actually changes our heart. Now, let's look at it together. Firstly, uh, you can see there on the outline, believing God means that I can see things as they really are. Uh, belief in God in our world is sometimes described by our secular world as, well, make-believe. That's what belief in God is. But the truth declared here in 1 Samuel 2 is that belief in God actually means the opposite of that. It means I can stop pretending. I can stop playing make-believe. I can stop playing the make-believe game of self-sufficiency and and self-determination in this world. Uh, These things are in many ways the settled belief system of a secular world, that I am a self-sufficient creature, that I am a self-determining creature. But but God's word counters that and says, ah, now that's make-believe. Here's how uh, the author John Stott put it. We have rejected, he speaks about our attitude as a world, we have rejected the position of dependence, which our createdness inevitably involves, 
and made a bid for independence. We proclaim our autonomy, which is to claim the position occupied by God alone. You can see the clash of perspectives uh, in our world, uh, and, and that's what 1 Samuel 2 is saying. Belief in God actually changes the way we view the world. Uh, the Bible shakes us from our pretense. Uh, this is how C.S. Lewis uh, puts it. He says, there does come a moment when children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. What if that is a real footstep in the hall? And that's what belief in God does. We realise there is more to this world than us and the games that we play in this world. Here's how verse 3 of our passage puts it. If you've got the passage in front of it, you there, you'll see it there. God is speaking, if you like, into the hallway of human history in this verse. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is the God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Belief in God helps us to stop pretending that we are alone in this world and we can live as we choose in this world. Uh, in the face of human self-sufficiency and, and self-justification, Hannah prays to the God who knows all about us. He doesn't stand distant. He's not uninvolved. He's not unaware. In the end, human pride will fall silent before the God who knows. And all human actions, we're told here in verse need to be seen in light of the fact that they will be weighed by God, not just by us. And so when we see things as they really are, when, when we stop pretending, a number of things that we rely on as humans are exposed. And uh, we see them in the following verses. They're exposed, uh, these foundations that we build life on uh, in the secular world are, are exposed as not built on rock, but sand. Have a look with me. Here's the first of them, verse 4. We see, when we stop pretending, that our strength will not save us. Verse 4. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Now, in many ways, this prayer is like a prelude for everything that we're going to see as we look through the book. And, and we will see just how strong the bows of the warriors are as we go through. Uh, within a few chapters, uh, the bows of the Philistines will bring the downfall of Israel and her king. And yet way before God, even these strong bows will break. And we'll see that also. The simple fact is, and this is what verse 4 is driving at, all human rule operates before a God who knows. And before him, all human rule will be silenced. Now, this is how another part of the Old Testament puts it. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire? And the people's plot in vain. Uh, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger. I mean, what great news that promise is uh, when you think of the brutal and godless use of power that we sometimes see in our world. Such power will inevitably be weighed and broken before the God who knows. Uh, there is great comfort in that. But this truth uh, about the, the God knowing about our use of power and how that will impact the brutal and godless power we see out there in the world also touches base here in our own lives, our own grasp at power. This is a warning for any human who chooses self-rule. Psalm 2 again, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The call here of this 
uh, prayer in verse 4 is to stop pretending. Our strength will not save us. Our only hope is to surrender and serve God as king. Uh, here's the second foundation, if you like, that's exposed as sand, not rock. Uh, verse 5, our prosperity will not secure us. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. But those who are hungry are hungry no more. Everything seems upside down in this verse, doesn't it? Uh, upside down for at least the way the world thinks it operates. Uh, and the one who believes in God, though, knows that human prosperity, which is so prized in this world, and human security are not ultimately linked. It sounds fanciful, doesn't it? But it bears out in reality. Uh, I was reading uh, this week uh, a quote by the American economist Alan Greenspan, who served as the chair of the Federal Reserve for some 20 years, a, a man who served a whole series of uh, US presidents. Uh, and he would know, you, you would think, after that time, whether human prosperity and security are linked. He, here's what he had to say. One of the reasons we never seem to win the game, despite our prosperity, is that the pursuit of prosperity seems to create a considerable sense of unease. Angst is part of the system. Fundamentally, societies have to make a decision as to whether they want more material well-being or more peace. Because regrettably, we cannot have both. And the scriptures declare this same thing to us, but we humans are slow learners. Uh, listen to Jesus in, in Luke chapter 12. He, he says these words, Do not worry about your life, about what you will eat, or about your body, or what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow and reap. Uh, they have no storeroom or barn, and, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Who, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? The call from the scriptures, and we're seeing it here in 1 Samuel 2, is to stop pretending that our prosperity, and if we got enough of it, we would be secure and at peace. Uh, our prosperity will not bring peace, says God. Our only hope, again, is to surrender and serve God as king. Here's a third foundation that is exposed for us. Uh, verse 6, our days are in his hands. The Lord brings death and makes alive. Uh, he brings down to the grave and he raises up. Uh, you know, it's, it's often suggested incorrectly that the Old Testament doesn't know anything about uh, the idea and the promise of resurrection, but, uh, well, here's proof otherwise. The Lord holds both life and death and life again in his hand. Do you believe this? And you see it there, verse 7 and 8. Everything, absolutely everything is in his mighty and good hands. Poverty, riches, fame, ignominy, all are in his hands. They're not in, the, in our control or in the control of those around us. They're, they're not some outcome of economic or social forces. It is as Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Only those who know this who number their days as a precious gift from his hand can hope to live wisely in this world. But more than holding just our life and death in his hand, look closely at verse 6. Verse 6 says, The one who believes in God knows that with him there is more to be said even after death. For the Lord is the one who makes alive, 
who raises the dead. The Lord sends, he humbles, he raises, he lifts, he seats, he unseats. He's the king. I want you to consider with me as we've seen these foundations that our world builds its life upon exposed, consider how much our worldview changes when we believe that what the Lord has said here and what the Lord has done. We see that our strength cannot save us. We see that our prosperity cannot secure us. Uh, we see that our days are not in our hands, but, but his. But in seeing all of this, you, you also see the, the true foundation to build a life upon. Do you see it there in verse 2? There is no one beside you, Lord. There is no rock like our God. There's a, there's a solid foundation. And Hannah's prayer shows us uh, what seeing this, this true foundation, does to a human heart. You see it there, verse 1, it's the, it's the start of the prayer. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn, or strength, is lifted high. My, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. If you can remember back to last week, 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah prayed there deeply distressed, weeping bitterly, we were told. Uh, she was brokenhearted. But now that same heart has been knitted back together by the God who is her rock and her deliverer. That once broken heart is now rejoicing. Believing in God in a broken world like this means being confident that God can restore that which is broken. And so let me invite you to test your heart. Do you believe that? And do you have a sense of how much uh, our world needs a restorer? How often our joy in this world is found in the things that we think make us strong. The security of our prosperity, the, the plans we make for our days as if they're in our hands, the, the things that help us feel independent and stable. And how often our distress comes from when we feel weak, when prosperity fails, when our plans are thwarted, when things that we feel uh, will bring us joy actually end up failing us. The power of belief in God is knowing that whether we feel weak or strong, it is the Lord who is my strength. It is the Lord who is my deliverer. And so let me invite you, it is time to stop pretending. Belief in God means you don't need to be strong. The Lord is your strength. When we find ourselves exhausted or anxious or bruised by a broken world, you do not need to be the strong one. The key to joy in such circumstances is not a better plan or some way to escape or a means of denial. It's knowing and trusting that the Lord is your strength. So test your heart, is, is that your joy? Nothing in this world can take that joy from you. Our joy is found in knowing that we are dependent on the one who is strong. Our joy is that you see there at the end of verse 1, we can stop looking for other things to deliver what we need in life. Those who believe in God say this, my heart rejoices in the Lord who is my strong deliverer. And I reckon the only way to loosen our dependence on the false joys and the, the flimsy deliverers of this world that we cling to, that, that our heart inexorably is, is drawn to take shelter in, the, the only way to grow free of that dependence is to grow the size of our heart's grasp of just how strong the Lord is, just how great a deliverer the Lord is. Uh, if you want joy, set your heart to that task. 
Now, just before we close, let's see not just how things are, but this uh, prayer helps us see the belief in God. It helps us see things as they will be. Have a look at the end of the prayer, verses 9 and 10. I said before, Hannah's prayer is somewhat of a prelude for the, for the whole book of 1 Samuel, but these final two verses are, are something of a prelude for, well, the way things will be at the end of history, not just at the end of the book, not just for Hannah either, not just for Israel, but for all the ends of the earth. It's like that C.S. Lewis quote, uh, capturing the picture of the end of time. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? Well, have a look at the second half of verse 9 and into verse 10, and here you see the footstep. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. What is yet to come is not a footstep in the hall, but thunder from heaven. As God the King comes to judge before whom we will, verse 9, fall silent. And so belief in God sets our vision not just to our day-to-day lives, but to the ultimate reality of that future. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Uh, Such topics uh, about judgment and God's uh, right as king to judge the ends of the earth is not spoken in polite conversation around uh, dinner tables. I, I guess it's not particularly winsome. But I'll tell you what it is, it's true. All human activity of all time, in all places, will come before this God. God is coming in thunderous judgment. And I think that reality should do three things to our heart. And we'll close with this. Here's the first thing it should do for your heart as we gather here this morning. It should mean that your heart can rejoice. Because you know this, uh, remember verse 2, the Lord is your horn, your strength, uh, your deliverer, even in the face of this judgment. If you believe in God, you know the gospel. You know how God has fulfilled his promise to rescue you even from this judgment. Do you see what this promise that God gives in this uh, prayer uh, centres on in verse 10? It's on his king. It's on the anointed, the Christ I wonder as we listen to Hannah's prayer whether the the other prayer that Sue read for us was echoing for you from Luke's gospel, a a prayer on the lips of a woman many years later, uh, Mary. Uh, She who had been told that her child would be a great king. The king promised here in 1 Samuel 2 verse 10. She is told that his kingdom will never end. And Mary knew this, this king, God's son, Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one, would bring judgment. And she also knew that only he could deliver us from it. And so if you believe in God, you know this gospel. You know how God has fulfilled this promise. You know what God has done to enable you to stand on that judgment day. Do you see that promise there, verse 9? Those who are faithful will stand. It's not because of us, it's because of his grace. God has promised this thunderous judgment and no one will stand. And yet Jesus, the risen king who will lead the judgment, has actually come in advance of the judgment. Not in thunder, but in humility. Not to be served, but to serve. Not to plunder riches of prosperity, but to spend them on our ransom. He came to offer terms of peace. 
Not to call off the judgment because God is just, it must happen, but to take our place. To carry the judgment on himself because only he can stand in the face of judgment. So if we go it alone, we will fall. But if we take shelter in him by faith, we shall stand. That's his promise. Our heart can't help but rejoice in that deliverance. Here's another thing, though, it will do to our hearts. Knowing this should also break our hearts. Look at the end of verse 9. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The only way that promise will not break our heart is if we ignore the reality of it or we ignore those around us who oppose the Lord. If our faith is in God, it should break our heart that the day is coming on the ends of the earth, including our end of the earth, our suburbs, our streets, our friends, our homes, my brother, my sister, almost every single one of my relatives. How about you? Who comes into your heart as you hear this promise of judgment and does it break your heart? But as this promise breaks our heart, here's one final thing it should do to our hearts. It should make our hearts brave because you know the full promise. You know there is a coming judgment, but you also know there is a sure deliverance. That, the reality of that will, will and I think must stir us to action. For those we know, those we love, those around us, uh, there's this great moment near the end of uh, the book of Lord of the Rings uh, where the hobbits, who uh, they, they like to spend their life in the shire, in the, in the cloistered shire, away from trouble and away, away from the rest of the world, that somehow they get drawn into this huge battle. And uh, at one particular moment, Mary, one of, the, uh, uh, one of the hobbits, sees some of the other hobbits in danger. And uh, this, this heart that's used to being like hiding away in the shire says this, pity filled his heart and great wonder. And suddenly the slow kindled courage of his race awoke. Uh, I love this quote uh, about the hobbits used to living in their leafy homes and comfortable and content. And yet he glimpses the danger, his courage awakes and he is moved to action for those around him. My prayer for us as a church family is that God will fill our heart with this prayer today that he will wake us from our post-COVID lockdown cloistered bunkers. And in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, that we who know what it is to fear the Lord will try to persuade others. We who are Christ's ambassadors, who know that God is making his appeal through us, would implore people on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to him. Well, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your King, the Anointed, Jesus. We thank you for the joy of knowing that there is no rock like him and that we can build our life upon him. We thank you that he is our strong deliverer, even in the face of your judgment. Fill our hearts with joy at that hope. Break our hearts for those we know who live opposed to him and give courage to our hearts to speak on his behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.